Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. These are pretty cool. And I'm a little jealous I don't get to do them on Sunday mornings. There's gummies, too. When you're a kid, you... Um, you have these nostalgic things. For me, it's those Capri Suns, and they're meant for kids, so I would look terrible and juvenile if I were drinking them during an adult event, but I secretly want to, so (laughs) I'm just admitting that. I want to pray quickly as well for what's going to happen next. Um, That is, I'm going to proclaim God's word by his grace, so if you would just um, give me a moment. I'm going to pray here for the sermon. God, I need you. I need your help in my flesh, in my preparation, my mind is frail, my mind is human, and I can't change anyone. I can't glorify you as you deserve. I can't purify my own heart. But you, God, you give grace. And I pray that you would give that this morning to all of us. May we hear your word and glorify you. May, we, may I be empowered, God, to proclaim it as it should be proclaimed with unapologetic confidence that you are who you say you are and with the fire that you call us to display. Set me ablaze, God, for your glory. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen. It is my privilege this morning to be preaching through Romans 4, 1 to 12. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to go ahead and turn in that direction and we'll read that in just a second. My priorities here are that we as we pray, glorify God and enjoy him together by meditating on his word and trying to interpret it accurately. And I'm trusting as we do this very thing that the Holy Spirit of God is going to lead us to respond, whether that's by faith and repentance or joy or prayer. I'm trusting God to do his work this morning through his word. Let's read together Romans 4, 1 to 12. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. 
As I said earlier, my priorities here are that we glorify God and enjoy him together by meditating on his word and trying to interpret it accurately. And one way we can set ourselves up to interpret this accurately is to be sure that we're taking into account the context surrounding these verses. First, I'm going to quickly recap the wider Bible context of this passage. And then I'm going to very briefly look at the historical context in this letter to the Romans. We're going to walk through this morning's verses together. And then last, we're going to parse out how what Paul teaches here is both similar to and different than what his friend and ally James teaches in chapter 2 of his book. So first, we're backing up to the bigger context of the Bible. Our scriptures begin with the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These very books are often referred to by the apostles and the New Testament authors as the law. Now, in the first opening chapters of the law, Genesis, we learn that God is the righteous, holy giver of life. Our creator, our king, and our friend. But we betrayed our friend, the king, and became sinful rebels, too unclean to stay in his holy presence. We cut ourselves off from the holy giver of life. We knew doing all this would cost us our lives. So death became the debt we owed, and we became dead inside. This made us a proud, selfish, faithless humanity with impure hearts hardened against God and each other. We no longer desired God. When we took on our sin debt and became all of those things, God had every right to make us pay our debt in full and end the story right then and there but he instead delayed his justice. We became exiles, but there was hope because God chose to rescue humans to his own glory. He engaged with certain individuals and families like uh, the family of Seth or of Enoch or Noah. These chosen people, they were born with unclean, hardened hearts, and they still owed that same debt. And yet... God gave each one of them a gift by the power of his Holy Spirit. They were able, to some extent, to have a friendship with God. And in moments of their lives, they were able to exhibit great faith. Not, not mere belief in God's existence. These, these individuals, they were changed by God. And God treated them as if they didn't owe that debt. He was giving them grace. In Genesis 6, 8, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that's what grace is. It's favor we didn't deserve. So we humans, we were aimless exiles, but God had a plan. It involved rescuing humans to his own glory. And we all have our role to play ultimately in that. Now, God has progressively given his people more clarity about God's own nature and, and the nature of reality and the nature of his plan as the centuries went on. And a part of that plan was to choose a man named Abram. God was going to create a kingdom of people called Israel from Abram's family line who were going to serve his purposes and receive his progressive revelation about himself. 
Now, one big hurdle in the way of that people group coming to be, Abram and his wife were childless, and they were elderly. So how could God give Abram a nation of people from his descendants if Abraham had no descendants? In Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram replied, O Lord God, what can you give me since I remain childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram continued, Behold, you have given me no offspring, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one will not be your heir, but one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And the Lord took him outside, and he said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars, if you are able. Then he told him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. As we know about all humans, Abram's natural fallen posture was a hardened, faithless heart towards God. But Abram believed the Lord instead, which means God's Spirit must have given Abram a wonderful gift. Abram was saved from following his own sinful nature, in this case, by grace through faith. And again, not any mere belief. It was a kind of trust in God that was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And God did exactly what he promised to do. God, in time, gave Abram, now renamed Abraham, a physical son named Isaac. And Isaac would have a son named Jacob. Jacob would eventually be renamed Israel. Now let's, let's fast forward to the immediate context of the book of Romans this morning. God's people in Rome, they seem to have been struggling with tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. The church started as 100% made up of Jewish Christians. They were coming back home from Rome after hearing the gospel in Jerusalem. And then all the Jews in the city including the Jewish Christians, they were expelled from Rome by Caesar for nearly a decade. While the Jewish Christians were gone, lots of Gentile Romans were still being evangelized. Then the Jewish Christians were eventually allowed back in Rome, and they found themselves to be the minority now among lots of Gentile Christians. They started to self-segregate into Gentile house churches and Jewish house churches. So the first three chapters in Romans, they, they seem like a complex theological discussion that Paul is having primarily with the Jewish Christians in Rome. He's taking them aside and he's helping them to navigate how the gospel of grace through faith relates to these 613 covenant laws that God gave them generations before. Right now, these Jewish Christians, they want the Gentile men to start taking on more Jewish practices like getting circumcised. The assumption was, if you Gentiles are converting into the people of Abraham, then you should be circumcised like Abraham. And the Gentile Christian men, they don't seem eager to do any of that. And this gets us back to Romans 4. Read with me in verse 1, and we're going to walk through these verses together. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, we can tell that Paul is talking to the Jewish Christians 
because he calls Abraham our forefather according to the flesh. Paul is a Jewish Christian, too. He and these precious brothers in the faith, they share Abraham's DNA, and he's speaking to them from shared Jewish experience. And in the context of what Paul has been saying thus far, we know what Abraham gained. Paul has been talking about the gift of justification poured out by grace through the channel of faith. That's been the first three chapters of Romans so far. Abraham discovered the very gift we all need. And like Abraham, all of us, we were born owing this debt. We were rebels, we hated God, and we were exiled from him. So this morning, let me ask, does it feel like you gained something when you became a believer in Jesus? As if you discovered a treasure worth selling everything for? Because you didn't just gain something, you gained everything. We all had the same basic problem. We were separated from God. Now, if you have justification, you have God again. If you have God, what can ultimately be taken from you? Your debt has been paid. You are forgiven. If you're in Christ, any tempting thought that tells you you are still condemned, it is a lie. If you have justification, you absolutely have peace with God. Back in Genesis 15, before God makes the promise about the stars in the sky to Abraham, how does he greet him? He tells Abraham, do not be afraid, Abram. Do not be afraid. We had every right to be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. So as God is about to give Abraham faith, it's clear that God is already giving him grace. And God is giving Abraham the gift of God himself. You can't get better than that. So dear Christians, please know this morning, God is your shield and your very great reward. Let's keep going with verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So in context, what does the word works mean here? Because generally speaking, a work is any activity that requires some effort. And based on the backwards context of Romans 3.30 and the forward context of Romans 4, 9, and 10, Paul's referring specifically to the circumcision issue here. And that specific effort-based activity, it can, it can serve to represent any of the laws of Moses or any good work we do. This, this is a case study. So just for a second, imagine, what if any one of these effort-based activities was the channel through which grace and justification was poured out on us? What if I told you that in addition to your faith, if you just get this one ceremonial surgery, your sin debt will finally be forgiven? You'll have peace with God, and you'll no longer be dead inside. Let's imagine that you accept this premise, and you go through with it. It's difficult, it's painful, but you feel good about yourself. And then later, this new guy comes in, and he's not willing to get the procedure done. What's wrong with that guy? We went and we did the deed, even though it hurt. Why won't he? I guess he just doesn't have the discipline we have, right? Maybe he's a coward. I mean, not everyone can be us. This one painful procedure was the key that unlocked the door of grace. So if you're not willing to unlock that door and have your sins forgiven, 
then I guess that's the difference between me and you, isn't it? That is boasting. It's pride. We might not boast before God, but we'd certainly boast in our own hearts. And we boast within our social circles. What's wrong with those people? Why don't they just do as I do? And I am sad to admit, sometimes I do boast inside. If you see someone making a bad decision, and guys, maybe it really is a bad decision. It's easy to wish they were just more like you, more wise like you, more disciplined like you, and then they wouldn't make such bad decisions. That's pride talking. And you could very well be correct that you are making good decisions right now, but pride forgets the grace of God. We were born as rebels, remember, and as lawbreakers. Making bad decisions would be the easiest thing in the world for us if not for God's special and common grace restraining us from doing worse throughout our lives. And the saving grace of God didn't come to us through the channel of any action we took. No special deed unlocked that door. It came through the gift of grace through faith. And as Paul says in his letter to Titus, grace trains us to renounce wickedness. It changes us to be open to wise teaching. Guys, without God being kind to me, I would be making many, many more terrible decisions right now than I'm already making. We all would. So why would we brag about something we didn't do? Let's go into verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We read this in the beginning as we were going over the larger biblical story. And we know Abraham's struggle in this passage was specifically over God's promises to give him a son. God doesn't promise children or specifically a son to any of us, but he did specifically promise that to Abraham. As we mentioned earlier, Abram's natural posture as a born sinner would have made him a hater of God, an idolater, a rebel against God. But Abram believed the Lord instead. God gave Abram the gift of being saved from following his own sinful nature in this case by grace through faith. And this wasn't just any mere belief. It was a kind of trust that was counted as righteousness. And God had planned that Jesus would soon pay that sin debt in full for Abraham. So God credited Jesus' righteousness to Abraham's account in advance. And we are all fallen we don't want to trust God. So the fact that Abram believed like this at all was a miracle. God intervened in Abraham's heart to make that happen. This is 100% a gift of God's own free initiative. Going to verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And guys, this illustration easily, it makes sense to all of us. We don't do our jobs for free. If Eaton Corporation wasn't paying me, I wouldn't be spending most hours of the week working there. And I don't thank them every time I get a paycheck. I expect a paycheck. So can we ever relate to God like that? Such that I'd provide a service to God, a good deed, and then I'd expect him to compensate me. 
In fact, if this thinking, if it were true of my relationship with God, I could logically say that God is obligated to me, that he owes me this. It doesn't sound right, does it? It's meant to sound wrong. That's the argument Paul is making. The Bible scholar Douglas Moo, he unpacks the argument like this. God is a God of grace who always gives freely and without constraint. He can never be obligated to any person. The fact that God always relates to his creatures freely and without compulsion, this is a fundamental perspective on God that Paul never argues explicitly, but he assumes it's self-evident. So for me to say, God has to give me this, he owes me, that's meant to sound wrong because it is fundamentally wrong. It's profoundly off base to think I can compel God to do anything that he will ever owe me, even an inch of his patience or an iota of his provision. We cannot obligate the God who created us. We can't, we can't pressure him or force his hand. And we will never be in a position to bargain with God. There is no leverage that we can use against him. Nor should we try. We are limited, created beings. And we were sinners who owed him everything. Our every breath and a sin debt we could never have hoped to repay on our own. He has no obligation to us. He never will. But the mystery of the gospel teaches that God does freely give. And he freely chooses who he's going to bless. And he pours out justifying grace through faith onto them. And if you ever feel less than grateful for being a recipient of that grace through faith. Let me encourage you to remember what we are in light of who he is. Let's keep going to verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who does not work. Paul is most likely referring to the Gentile Christian converts here. They didn't have, nor did they obey, all the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses, like the circumcision laws. But they now believed in God who justifies the ungodly. So when these Gentiles started coming to saving faith in Christ, the apostles Peter and Paul, they were not asking them to get circumcised or to start obeying the kosher food laws or feasts or anything like that. Now, some others in the church, they felt differently. So in Acts 15, a large council that came together on this topic in Jerusalem. What do we do now that so many Gentiles are being brought in? Should we hold them to all the 613 laws of Moses? Maybe specific ones like circumcision. How should we handle this? I'm going to read you what Peter said in that meeting. This is Acts 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, 
having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So the apostles, they determined that, no, God hadn't commanded that circumcision would be necessary. And the church wasn't going to ask all these new Gentile converts to take on all the specifics of Judaism. These Gentiles already had faith, and God's justifying grace was upon them. God's grace through his spirit was already changing these Gentiles into honest, loving people who displayed the fruit of the spirit, like Joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. They had the gift of saving faith, and that was already being counted as righteousness. The gift of faith was the clear, bright, flashing sign that God's perfect righteousness had already been credited to them. So why would you ask these righteous people to try and get more righteousness credited to their account when God himself wasn't asking them to do that? How can you do better than the already applied righteousness of God? One other implication, it comes to the surface here as we think about this regarding Jews and Gentiles and the new covenant. And it can be edifying to think through. Jesus taught in Mark 7, 14 to 23, that the reason humans are unclean is not what they eat, but it's in their hearts. Our sin made us unclean from the inside. And in the new and better covenant, we have the completed, once for all, superior sacrifice of Jesus. We have what Abraham hoped for, but didn't see in his lifetime. We have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit coming down in a new way, beyond Abraham's or any prophet's dreams. The Holy Spirit, he washes, baptizes, and he permanently indwells his people now. And he didn't do this before. Abraham received the the gift of justification through faith, but nothing to the degree of the ongoing, empowering, purifying presence that we have now. Guys, we Christians, we have all become permanent walking temples of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, God has made us perpetually clean from the inside. We now have Jesus' perfect cleanness and holiness applied to us. Our hearts have been cleansed. And if the Jewish Christians in Rome wanted to continue circumcising their children or or keeping kosher because of their consciences, they could. Paul and Peter never told them they had to stop. But the kosher laws weren't necessary anymore in order to be clean or in the presence of holiness. And we didn't need to make Gentile Christians start keeping kosher. As God said in Acts 10, 15, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. And that refers to all of us. Going on to verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And this is Paul acknowledging that David seemed to be an elect, justified believer like Abraham. And David, as we know, unfortunately made some horrible mistakes and committed grievous sins in his life. But David was also justified by grace through faith. And David's awful sins, they were covered because Jesus was going to be counted as a sinner in David's place. And Jesus was going to pay David's debt and take the wrath that David justly deserved. None of this had anything to do with David's keeping the ceremonial law of Moses or not his keeping away from all immoral action. It was because God had blessed him. And dear Christians, since God has covered your sin and your lawless deeds are completely forgiven, you too and me, we are absolutely blessed Going on to verse 9. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Abraham, he was present when one of the oldest of the Jewish laws was enacted. When God gave the command that all the men and boys in Abraham's family be circumcised, which also included him in his old age. And Genesis said on purpose, with that specific timing, that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And guys, this was decades before he had received or obeyed that ceremonial law. And his obedience, it wasn't the reason he was justified. Clearly, God's grace was but God gave the now justified Abraham a command specific to him and his physical descendants involved in his covenant. And the grace through faith that was already in him moved Abraham to gladly obey this command, and his obedience functioned as a seal. In the ancient world, they put seals on official documents made of wax and embedded with the signet ring imprint of the author to show that they're genuine. It's an easy way to see that a document isn't incomplete or a fake. It's an additional sign serving as a guarantee for the contents inside. And as we engage with the book of James in just a moment, we'll come back to that. It's about the connection between Christian faith and obedience. Now to the larger point that Paul is making here. Scripture is clearly teaching that every Gentile in this room who has saving faith in Christ is like Abraham before God made that special covenant law with him. And he's a spiritual father figure to us. We may not share his DNA, but when God said, through you all the nations will be blessed, and when God said, I'll give you children like the stars in the sky, 
dear Gentile Christians, you were one of those stars that he was talking about. Children in spirit, even if not according to the flesh. And for any Christians here of Jewish descent, Paul is teaching that you're a part of the faithful remnant. Unfortunately, a large portion of Abraham's descendants, both in the Old Testament and in the first century AD, they were going to refuse to follow in Abraham's footsteps of faith. And Paul is going to agonize over this reality as Romans goes on. But there's always been a contingent among the Israelites who were both like Abraham in their ancestry and like him in their faith. The song is true. Abraham, he did have many sons. Many sons have Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's praise the Lord, right? Now we're missing one thing. We're going to finish today by quickly engaging with Paul's friend and ally in the gospel. James, the earthly brother of Jesus. Now before we jump into James' letter, let's zero in on one more verse from Paul in Galatians. And this gives additional clarity to what Paul means when he uses the word faith. Let's read Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Here, guys, Paul is dealing with the same issue as in Romans 4. We're asking, how important Jewish covenant laws like circumcision are for Gentile converts to the Christian faith? Do they count towards justification or, or salvation? And we've read both here and in Romans that faith is the exclusive channel through which we receive justification. So if you have this saving faith, this is the sign that your heart has already been purified by the Holy Spirit. And in the Galatians passage, Paul adds a helpful phrase that describes saving faith. He uses the words faith working through love. We've also already seen that when God pours out his grace on us through the channel of faith, this gift changes us. We hated God, but now we love him. We didn't trust him before, but by this gift, he is now everything to us. We are irrevocably altered as human beings by this same process that God applies to all his elect, whether Enoch or Abraham or David or Josiah or John the Baptist or Paul or you. The faith that God gives us as a gift is the kind of faith that moves us to works and moves us to love. Paul met James when he went to Jerusalem. Paul ensured with all the apostles that Paul's gospel message and Peter's and James, they were all on the same page. And Paul warned in Galatians that if anyone, even an angel, gave a separate gospel, let them be accursed. So guys, Paul's gospel and James' gospel, they're the same gospel. Let's read James 2, 14 to 26. James 2, 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James is actually quoting the same passage that Paul quoted about Abraham's faith being counted to him as righteousness. And he's not disagreeing with that verse. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We've established the Apostle Paul had no patience for false gospels. And Paul and James, guys, they were actually friends, and they were gospel allies. We also know James was writing at least a decade earlier than Paul, if not more than that. When James was writing, the church was still primarily Jewish. He refers to his hearers as the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and he still uses the word synagogue for their meeting places. So when James uses the word works, James is not referring to circumcision or kosher laws. He's not saying we need Christian Gentiles to start adding ceremonial laws to their gift of faith in order to be saved. Remember, that's what Paul was specifically addressing as a case study here. Rather, James is referring to acts of compassion and generosity. James is rebuking Jews who outwardly say they are Christians, but they are refusing to even obey Jesus because they're not loving or caring for their own poverty-stricken brothers and sisters in the faith. And James is not teaching that there's a channel other than the gift of faith through which justification is poured out on us by grace. He's not teaching that God will ever owe us anything or be obligated to us because of our generosity. God owes us nothing. And being generous won't give us any leverage over God. Remember, he freely gives grace. And James is also not giving us room to boast because we help the poor. Remember, guys, as Romans says, if we were justified by works, we'd have something to boast about. But James hates pride, just like Paul. And he rails against boasting in his own letter. What James is teaching, in the full context of his own paragraph, is that there are different kinds of faith. There's a type of faith which has no change of heart, no generosity, no compassion, no follow-up. It, it doesn't move you or change you. It's passive, and it only results in someone telling you that they believe something. James has several names for this faith. He calls it dead, or faith by itself, or faith apart from works, or faith alone. In each of these expressions, he is reserving, he's, sorry, referring to the same type of wimpy belief. So for the purposes of keeping the difference clear, I'm going to use the word mere belief 
to describe this reality. And mere belief, Christ Church, doesn't justify us. The demons have mere belief in God, and they even tremble. But they haven't been changed by God. They don't love God. They don't trust God. So mere belief is dead faith. It's the best kind of faith that a dead heart of stone can muster. Dead hearts display dead faith. Now, the other kind of faith is the kind that James is promoting. You show me your type of faith that doesn't produce any works, and I'll show you my type of faith by my works. James's type is a different kind of faith than mere belief. He calls this faith active with works, faith completed by works, or maybe living faith. I'm going to refer to this as saving faith, the kind of faith that saves you. This is the sort of faith God gives as a gift, and it serves as the exclusive channel of our justification. Christ Church, secular categories, they don't differentiate these things. To our peers in the world, faith is faith is faith. Belief is belief either way. But we should let God form our categories of thought rather than our peers. James and Paul are both teaching in favor of saving faith. And they're both teaching staunchly against mere belief. As Paul is writing Romans 4, saving faith is exactly what he had in mind when he was referring to Abraham or, or David or the Gentile converts. And Paul fought the slanderous gossip that we should all just keep sinning so the grace can abound. Mere belief? That'd be fine with continuing to sin. Saving faith would not. Saving faith is a gift of God that changes us. Saving faith is what Paul described in Galatians 6.5. Faith working through love. So when James is saying that works are justifying, he's using the word justified differently than Paul used it. Paul used that word to describe our objective standing with God. James... He's using it to describe external evidencing, as in our, our being shown as righteous. James's way of using the word is more like this. If I needed to justify myself or my actions to all of you, I would do so by demonstrating that I did the right thing. It's that outward validation or proving of one's internal state. And I think James understands that his word choice here could be confusing. So he continues to elaborate and clarify his intended meaning. In the context of his very own paragraph, what he's communicating is that these follow-up actions serve to complete and verify Abraham's and Rahab's saving faith. Like an official seal that confirmed his faith was the real thing. Because it was saving faith, it resulted in action. Because it was saving faith, it didn't remain incomplete, as in just mere words. This morning, if you feel convicted that your faith looks more like mere belief than saving faith, then I'm exhorting you, repent and believe. Conviction over sin is God's gift to you. So listen closely to it and obey God as his spirit leads you. And guys, condemnation is not of God. Condemnation forgets the gospel and despairs. Conviction remembers the gospel and all that Christ has done for us. 
With conviction, there is hope. With condemnation, there's not. If you genuinely want to obey God, if you have been moved from being resistant to God to desiring God, these are all signs that God has been at work in you. I encourage you to be sensitive to that and thank him for it because he didn't owe that to any of us. He freely gives out of love and to his own glory. So glorify God this morning. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you give us everything that we need for righteousness, for godliness. Among those, God, is your gift of justification. I pray this morning, God, that confusion over this category would be, would be clarified. I pray that your word would speak loudly to our hearts when we feel condemned. I pray that we would feel thankfulness to you for all that you've done for us, recognizing that you didn't owe any of that to any of us. God, be at work in us to your glory. We trust you, and we're going to sing in response to this. In Jesus' name, amen.